Welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London, with me Toby Gillis and Rebecca Myers. The UK government's asylum system is under pressure, and as The Times exclusive reveals, an alleged Russian spy lied to get asylum. We hear his unbelievable story and its potential repercussions across the Western world. We start today's podcast with a quite incredible Times exclusive story explaining how an alleged Russian spy lied to gain asylum in the UK before working for the Foreign Office, accessed British military and intelligence secrets and met with the future king, Charles III. He came from Afghanistan and is accused of spying for Russia's military intelligence agency. And a court in the UK has heard he also worked for GCHQ, the UK's intelligence, security and cyber agency, and MI6, the secret intelligence service. The story is not an easy one to explain, so let's make sure we get the detail correct, shall we, by welcoming to The World in 10 the person who uncovered and wrote it. The Times is Emma Yeomans. Emma, firstly, tell us about how this alleged spy got so deep into some of the UK's most secretive agencies – And also, am I correct in saying there may be a US link too? So we know the alleged spy only as C2. C2 came to the UK in 2000 and he told officials that he had come from Afghanistan as a refugee. He is Afghan, but he had been living for six years in Russia at that point. He had a Russian wife and he came to the UK with the help of a people smuggler carrying a fake Russian passport. He was granted leave to remain, started doing interpreting work and the court heard on Tuesday that he had been hired by GCHQ as an interpreter, though the government dispute that. He went on to work for the Foreign Office in both Britain and Afghanistan and after working for the Foreign Office in Afghanistan, he then moved into the public and private sectors there. He stayed in the country. And it is in that period that it is alleged that not only did he have contact with GRU officers, but he may have been in contact with US officials in the country as well. And Emma, in the piece you say the revelations are embarrassing for the British government. I imagine it's a story that might send shockwaves across the Western allies of the UK as well. I certainly think it should. As we said, uh, while he was in Afghanistan, he had contact with many officials in, in the coalition forces. He is accused and he admits passing contracts related to NATO to these two Russian military attaches who are said to be GRU officers. He also admits paying them cash bribes. Now, he denies the accusations of spying, but that alone should raise some eyebrows. OK, Emma Yeomans, thank you so much for joining us on The World in 10. Um, this is a story that needs reading to fully get your head around. We can't properly do it justice here in the amount of time we've got. So head online for the full picture now. As we've often mentioned since the start of the year on The World in 10, more than half of the world's population will vote in national elections in 2024. There are developments in three of those today, and we'll start with Russia, where polling takes place next month. But voters' options have been reduced after a politician who's built quite a following was blocked from running on a technicality. Boris Nadezhdin says he properly collected more than 200,000 signatures in support of him across the country. But the Election Commission has found flaws in them. This is Nadezhdin speaking, vowing to appeal, saying, what can I say? The decision was expected. I don't have anything against the commission. I have complaints against the laws themselves that make it impossible to collect the signatures. 
That appeal, he says, will be to the Supreme Court and then the Constitutional Court. It's interesting because there's usually a hand-selected opponent for Vladimir Putin and political insiders there say the Kremlin had acquiesced to that being Nadezhdin, only to take fright when he proved so popular. Now, our next stop on the election merry-go-round is Finland, which is strategically important because of its huge border with Russia. You'll remember the Finns recently became the newest member of NATO. And that's become a major battleground for the country's runoff election to be held on Sunday because the two candidates, Pekka Harvisto, the foreign minister who took Finland into NATO, and Sauli Niinistö, have clashed over whether they could host the alliance's nuclear weapons. It could be crucial to the outcome of the poll come next week. Our final stop is Pakistan. Very brief, as we'll analyse this in detail in tomorrow's episode. But voting on Thursday was marred by militant attacks at the polls, with at least nine people, including two children, killed. The children died in an explosion at a women's polling station in a former Pakistani Taliban stronghold. That after two Islamic State attacks on Wednesday left 29 dead. Whoever wins in Pakistan, they've not just the dire economic situation to clear up, but also an extremely politically polarised population. To an amazing piece from the Times' George Grills from inside Israel, specifically the Kafar Azar kibbutz, which was devastated so badly in the October the 7th terror attacks, this was impossible for us to ignore today. George has visited the only couple out of a former population of 900 to have returned to live there. He was given a tour by Shahar Shnoman and Ayelet Cohen, who told him the scene they found was ruinous. There's the burnt-out carcasses of of houses, bullet-ridden homes, and sort of wood has been used to sort of patch up broken glass. But it really is still a scene of devastation, and all the plants are overgrowing. Like all kibbutzim in Israel, it's got a sort of proud tradition of agriculture and growing fruit and vegetables, and all the fruit trees, particularly the orange trees, there's no one to, to pick these beautiful fruits, so they all fall on the floor, and there's this kind of smell of, of, of rotting oranges in the air. They're amazing people, but they're conflicted about what the future of the kibbutz is. On the one hand, it has become something of a living museum. At one point, Shahar sort of compared it to to Auschwitz, but then kind of retracted from that because, you know, at Auschwitz, schoolchildren are encouraged to see, to learn the history of what happened there. And that's kind of what you see when you go to Kvazar, that the the people walking around are are there on, on visits. You know, there's lots of foreign dignitaries that come. But on the other hand... He, he was saying it wasn't like that because they want to restore life to it. So they've started hosting barbecues for sort of um, volunteers who have been sort of trying to rebuild the kibbutz and stuff and, and come on day trips to try and encourage a bit of life back. 60 people from Kafar Azar were murdered on October the 7th and it's thought five more were taken as hostages by Hamas. So you can imagine the conflicted feelings of survivors when it comes to returning. And George's piece expands into that issue of what might happen to these kibbutzim near to Gaza, as well as in the north of Israel, where people have fled the rockets flying to and from Lebanon. While a huge fund, almost £4 billion, is available to encourage evacuees to return, so far it's not working. And there are political elements at play. Shahar Shnorman told George Grills he thinks the state of Israel can't feel safe as long as Benjamin Netanyahu is in power. At the moment, I'm more frightened of him than I am of Hamas. 
And there have been protests along those lines, even as Netanyahu continues to claim an Israeli victory is only one that extinguishes Hamas from Gaza. But even former allies of Netanyahu's, like the mayor of another town, Sederot, have joined the protests. Alan Davidi says he told the Prime Minister, what does victory look like? Many say it's that the people come back. It's a story that has rocked the world of Formula One, with Red Bull boss Christian Horner facing a hearing into a complaint of inappropriate behaviour towards a female member of staff. He denies these allegations. Matthew Syed is really a man without opinion, and his latest Times column is as provocative as ever. He says whatever happens in the hearing, other behaviour by Horner needs to be looked at. You'll be thinking about leadership styles and the culture of the sport when you read the whole piece. It's the supergroup of everyone's dreams. A Beatle, a Rolling Stone, Sting, Springsteen, Slash, Beck, Queen are represented and 47 other rock gods have teamed up for a charity single raising cash for Teenage Cancer Trust in the UK and Teen Cancer America. Mark Knopfler's Guitar Heroes recorded their parts of Going Home and it was all knitted together in a studio in London. Have a look at the times.co.uk now for the full lineup. It is a who's who of rock and roll and, of course, a great cause. It really is. That is it for today, though, unfortunately. Thanks for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of the Times of London. See you tomorrow. Thank you.